I think I know the answer to this, but let me ask it anyway. You got anybody in your life that you get sort of tired of talking to because it doesn't matter the conversation, it doesn't matter the context, whatever it is you're talking about, they somehow find a way to redirect it back to themselves. It can be a drain talking to people like that because it doesn't matter the situation, they've got some sort of angle to bring it back around to them regardless of the context. By the way, if you can't come up with someone like that in your life, then you do the math. (laughs) Just being real. You're welcome. Uh, Seriously, though, uh, you have any of those kinds of people in your life? I'm sure you do. Uh, I've been that kind of person. Perhaps you've been that kind of person. These are the kinds of people who just sort of wear you out because it doesn't matter the conversation, the context, uh, the topic. It's like they somehow always find a way to sort of... It's like there's a tractor beam of self in their conversation. They're like a conversational black hole. I don't know about you, but as I think back on my own life, I shudder to think of how many times I have been that conversational black hole. Uh, I'm embarrassed to admit, not that I have a number, it'd be countless, but I'm embarrassed to admit how often I have found myself and even still find myself in a conversation saying things with people that bring them back around to Scott Wakefield's greatness. It's like, it's like my heart's this tractor beam of self. And I, and I sometimes I can't, can't help but, but suck the conversation into filling that vacuum in me. We can be talking about whatever. We can be talking, I'm talking with you, uh, and we can be talking about your kids, your job, uh, the weather today, uh, your favorite sports team, whatever. And and, and we're having this conversation, and I'm sitting there in my head the whole time thinking, uh, okay, okay, how can can we get this back to to me? How how can we, this conversational black hole thing uh, that happens. Now, here's the thing. People pick up on that, don't they? (laughs) People pick up on that. They pick up on that kind of stuff in conversation. And they often start to get the sort of feeling, the impression over time, after they've talked with you, you know, a few times maybe, that when they're talking with you or when they're talking with me, uh, it's mostly not really talking to you. It's really an opportunity to talk about you. Uh, if you want a funny four minutes, Google Brian Regan, me monster. Um, if you're a totally clean comedy fan of Brian Regan, R-E-G-A-N, Brian Regan, me monster, four minutes. It's hilarious. You're welcome in advance. So here's the takeaway question for us as we jump into Colossians 4. Does someone go away from a conversation with you with the feeling that they've been pointed toward Christ where they've been pointed to you. Just, just put very succinctly, very simply, does someone go away from a conversation with you with the feeling that you are marshalling your life's resources that God has given you, including your words, to be about the glory of God and His goodness being communicated or about your greatness... 
Because those are opportunities. Let's be real. Our words, our conversations, are opportunities to communicate the glory of God or to suck people into sort of that black hole of idolatry of self. (laughs) So do they go away in a conversation with you with a taste of grace? As if if there's something higher and more important about you than you. This This is at the heart of what Paul is trying to communicate here in Colossians 4. In fact, in our text today, Paul is in prison. And this dude has a reason to complain given the context. I mean, if I'm Paul, I'm like, dude, sick of being in here for the umpteenth time. Don't deserve to be here unjustly imprisoned just for talking about Jesus. This is my umpteenth time stuck in nowhere doing nothing. Dude's allowed to make it about himself for a moment if you ask me. But even given all that, he says, I want to use this as an opportunity for the glory of God. Listen to what he says in Colossians 4.3. We'll jump back into the second verse here in just a second. But look what he says in 4.3 real quick here. He says, pray also for us. Why? He says this, that God may open to us a door. That God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Even when Paul's in prison, his focus was making clear the truth of Christ. Jump in at verse 2. This is Paul reminding the Colossians to pray in order to keep that focus on Jesus. To pray in order to keep that focus on Jesus, he says this, jump in at verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. We're going to spend time here just on verse 2 primarily for a bit. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. He's saying, pray resolutely, sort of like with determination, in order to keep your focus. Uh, There was a time that Jesus told a parable about a poor widow who was in such personal need that she badgered the judge uh, over and over again for help. And this judge gave her justice because she was persistent, because she was focused. And Jesus used that parable to say, hey, listen, followers of mine, pray like that woman. He says, always pray and do not lose heart. So Paul says the same thing here. Continue steadfastly in prayer, verse 2, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Press pause. We're going to simmer a bit here on verse 2. Now, part of this kind of praying that Paul's talking about here, the with thanksgiving part, is relatively easy for us, isn't it? I mean, I mean, when you think about your life and take stock of the areas of your life and think about them clearly, seeing the places in our lives where God deserves thanks Praying with thanksgiving. That's something most of us can do relatively well. That kind of prayer comes pretty naturally. But I want you to take special note of this word he uses there, watchful. Paul is writing to encourage the Colossians to be thankful for God's blessing, sure. uh, But he wants them to pray with a purpose beyond just being thankful. And he hints here in verse 2 of this additional sort of outward purpose in their prayer. He says, be watchful in it. Be watchful in your 
prayer. Be watchful in your prayer. You see, Jesus had taught his followers to pray as if on alert. I know we were all told as kids, pray with your eyes closed so you can focus. Paul is saying, pray with your eyes open so you can focus. He's saying, pray as if on alert. In Mark 14, in the garden, as Jesus was turning toward the cross, and as his accusers were coming to arrest him, Jesus begged his disciples. He says, remain here and watch with me. By which Jesus meant, stay awake, be alert, and pray that your hearts are ready to enter into the work that God has for you. Just like he was turning to the cross, remaining alert, eyes open, being watchful for what God had for him to do. Jesus said in that moment, the garden for his disciples, you must do the same thing. Stay awake and pray that your hearts are ready to enter into the work that God has for you because it's going to be tough and you'd better be ready. So pray fervently. Be watchful. Stay alert that you will not fail the test. That's what Paul is saying here. The same kind of thing about continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. So here's what Jesus and now Paul here in Colossians 4 are both saying. Pray resolutely and with thanksgiving, sure. (laughs) But pray with your eyes open in effect. Meaning, pray while looking for the Lord's work and for ways to enter into that work. This is a different kind of prayer that is an invitation for God to take you down that same road of the cross. Jesus was turning to, for example, as he talked to his disciples in the garden. This is a radical departure from the content of much of our prayer. We most often pray with our eyes, in effect, sort of closed to the Lord's work. And while focused on self, we are not watchful in our prayer, not so much looking for the Lord's work and for ways for us to enter into that work. But the truth is, most of us are functionally praying as if we're reminding God for the ways in which He is to enter into our work we preaching yet. We are conversational black holes of self. Not just when talking with people verbally, but when talking to God. Often treating our prayer as if the purpose of prayer is to remind God of the ways in which He can follow our life's agenda. Which means we end up praying not watchfully. Not to enter the work that God has around us. But in effect, sort of blindly. With the eyes of our hearts closed to see where God is working. Which means if we're not careful, if we're not watchful, if we're not alert, we will go through life missing opportunities for mission all around us. All around us. When we pray from black holes of selfish idolatry, we end up 
missing mission. If you're taking notes, prayer for self equals missing mission. Prayer from self equals missing mission. Paul's saying here, prayer from submission, under the mission, prayer, is prayer that seeks to enter into the work that God is making happen all around us. So, so Paul says here in verse 2, pray watchfully, continue steadfastly, remain alert, pray with your eyes open. <laughs> and not just for yourself, but for him, for us. Keep reading. We're going to pick it up. Verse 3. Not just for you, but for us. He says at the same time, verse 3, pray also for us, not just for your eyes to be open, but pray that we would see the opportunities. I, I covet the prayers of others for me as I pray for you. I hope you covet the prayers of others so that you would be open to God's work. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. That God may present us with opportunities for the gospel. By this point in Paul's writings, uh, the word word is a way of saying the gospel uh, in basic terms. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. That's a weighty calling. Uh, To make clear what was once hidden, meaning to speak the incredible truth that God the Father has revealed himself in Christ. And we know here that Paul means actual verbal declaration because declare here is not some sort of metaphorical term that becomes explicit in the next verse here he says that i may make it clear this is why i'm in prison he says at the end of verse three pray that i may declare the mystery of christ on account of which i'm in prison that i may make it clear the mystery that was once hidden that's now explicit in christ that I may make it clear, which is how I ought, here's how we know it's explicitly about a verbal proclamation of the gospel, which is how I ought to speak, he says. So here's Paul in prison, in less than fun, less than ideal circumstances, and even in those, he is focused, he is resolute, he is praying with determination. Even then, on becoming an avenue, a way for people to know clearly what was once hidden. And he knows, he knows that even while he's in prison, his purpose is to declare the truth that infinite, perfect, holy God sent his son Jesus to save sinners. Think about that. Even while your life seems imprisoned in effect, like Paul here, even when your life seems uh, impossible, that is still the purpose. The purpose is not to remove yourself from circumstances, but for those circumstances to be the context within which, in fact, perhaps exactly the context from which God wants you to most powerfully declare the gospel. In fact, the difficult circumstance that you are in today is exactly the circumstance and the context God wants to use to powerfully communicate grace. Because then it's actually grace. Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure, the treasure of Jesus and the mystery that was once hidden, now made clear. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Uh, a jar of clay was a, an ancient Near Eastern term for the weakness of humanity. 
Um, so we have this treasure, this amazing treasure, in jars of clay, in the context of our weakness, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, to show that the surpassing ba- power belongs to God and not to us. Grace is proven through you communicating the gospel in the middle of difficulty. So, Paul understands that clearly. He's in prison writing this. So, so towards that end of speaking gospel through circumstances, he ends with some cool practical uh, instruction for us. Just the last couple of verses there, he says this. Verse 5, So walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Uh, my colloquial translation is, uh, don't be dumb with non-believers. That's in effect, you can quote me on that. Um, that's what the Greek uh, actually said. No, it's not really. Uh, but but don't, don't be foolish about how you communicate this. Be wise about how you communicate with non-believers and outsiders. They don't speak the same language you do. They're not going to follow and track with everything that, that makes sense, perhaps how we might say it here on Sundays. So be wise how you speak with outsiders. Because you're taking something that is called the mystery, this amazing truth that perfect divinity becomes limited humanity in Jesus and yet retains the fullness of God in a way that enables us to have a relationship with him. That's, that's unbelievable truth. <laughs> You've got to be wise how you communicate that. So walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Don't be dumb with non-believers. But he says, make the best use of the time. Don't squander it. Don't act like you've got forever to finally someday, eventually, maybe, get around to living as if your responsibility to preach the gospel is real. Make the best use of the time. And he says, let your speech, this is about your words, let your speech always be gracious. Uh, this is the phrase I love most in this whole, this whole passage here. Uh, let it always be gracious, filled with grace, filled with the truth that God gave us what we didn't deserve in Jesus. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Uh, salt, of course, was a preservative it, it maintained the taste and life of food. Um, so, so do people come away in an interaction with you as if you know, life in them is being preserved? Are you like a, a, a salt shaker of grace walking around? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, dispensing the truth of God's undeserved blessing. Why? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So that, others, so that others will leave a conversation with you, knowing that grace is what makes you tick. I have failed at this miserably time and time and time again. But I want to be the kind of, of believer and follower of Jesus who, like Paul, in my current circumstances, whatever they may be, in a conversation with people, they go away thinking his heart beats with grace. So the question, very simply, this is not a hard-to-understand message today. The question, very simply, is, friends, are your words full of grace? 
Because if your words are full of you, those around you will know it. You will inevitably communicate who you believe the world's about. But if your words are full of the truth of God's undeserved blessing and favor in your life, those around you will also know that. And they will go away in conversations with you with a taste of grace. And if your words are full of anger and pain and hurt and fear, then pray. Pray watchfully. If you have ears to hear, the Spirit of God will open your heart to see where He is working, to see the fields that are white with harvest, and you will begin to discover that your conversations have become moments of grace, opportunities for the gospel. Let's pray, friends.